Good morning, Sun Valley Church. It's a privilege to be with you again, uh, even in this format, uh, to deliver to you the faithful word of God, knowing that our hearts are in desperate need of these things. Uh, there, is, there is always a need for the word of God in our lives, but it seems that in our current desperate times in our lives and in our country, there is no more important time than today to hear the word of God. And of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is faithful to minister his word to our hearts. And that is our prayer that, that God would do these things for us as we look into his word and, and trust his Holy Spirit's ministry. William Barnes wrote a song that was sung by Barbara Streisand in 1963. It was a big hit, a popular song, um, most likely because of Streisand's amazing voice, but also, I think, um, because of its commentary on life that many, if not most, people can relate to. I want you to listen to some of the haunting lyrics here. Listen to this. I wanted to live in a carnival city with laughter and love everywhere. I wanted my friends to be thrilling and witty. I wanted somebody to care. I found my blue ribbons all shiny and new, but now I discover them no longer blue. The merry-go-round is beginning to taunt me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? There's nothing to win and there's no one to want me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? Can you hear the fear, the hopelessness, the disappointment in these lyrics? The character in this song has come to the painful realization that life in this world isn't able to fulfill or sustain the deepest desires of the heart. Sooner or later, we all want to get off the merry-go-round. There is nothing left to win. The stuffed animals don't do the trick any longer. The clowns are no longer entertaining and actually become annoying. There comes a time in everyone's life when they realize that this world has lost its attraction. Have you come to that place yet? Are you there? Have you realized yet that the world really has nothing to offer you? Even as a Christian, we can be drawn in by the shiny things. You know that. But is the world still attractive to you? And if I could address this to you, the Christian, especially, is the world still attractive to you? This is one of the main issues Paul is confronting in our verses this morning. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ includes being weaned from the world. Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 are well-known words, but they're penetrating words and they're there's strong words that address this issue. Let me read them for you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What amazing words. What what penetrating words. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ includes being weaned from this world. Paul's words powerfully direct our thoughts to the center of what it means to be a transformed, joyful gospel partner 
whose life reflects what he calls heavenly citizenship. There are three things that I want to point out to you in this passage this morning, in these two verses. And the first is this, a clarifying designation. A clarifying designation. Look back again. I hope you have your Bibles open. Look back again at verse 20. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. What does the word citizenship express here? What is Paul after? Well, there are only two options. You either are a citizen of heaven or you're a citizen of the world. There are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You cannot be part of both kingdoms. It's impossible to be 60% in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and then 60% in the kingdom of the world. If we are not in the kingdom of God, we are in the kingdom of Satan. It's one or the other. It's not both or partly either. I'm sure you've heard that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson just announced that uh, they are now citizens of Greece, and they were pictured taking or uh, holding up their passports, seemed to be proud of that. I don't know if they've retained their American citizenship or not. I haven't read that far. Um, but either way, it's confused their identity. Uh, but I do know this, that there is no such thing as a dual citizenship in the spiritual worlds. You're either in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of this world. You're either in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Satan. You can't have both and. Let me give you a little historical backdrop uh, from this text this morning because I think it'll help you understand why Paul uses this interesting designation of heavenly citizenship or citizens of heaven. You see, the Philippians understood what it meant to be uh, citizens of a different country. They knew that living in Philippi was different than being a Roman citizen. Even though they didn't live in Rome, they knew that they were Roman citizens. They knew what it, what it meant to be a resident alien. This is what we are. We are resident aliens here on this world if, if we're citizens of heaven. But the Philippians' money was Roman money. Their laws were Roman laws. Their architecture was Roman architecture. And their culture was Roman. Everything about them was Roman. But they lived in Philippi. And so Paul, understanding this and being the master teacher that he was, took advantage of this to communicate a critical spiritual truth to his beloved Philippians and, I think, to us. He tied that physical reality of living in Philippi but being citizens of Rome to the truth that the authentic Christian really is a citizen of heaven even though we live here on this planet. This is just a temporary arrangement where we're living. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I want to explain to you why Paul used this and, and why it's so important. Paul was saying that no matter how good or how bad our experiences is in this world, our citizenship, our home, is actually in heaven. If you've been regenerated, if you have been born from above, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John 3, if you are truly a Christian, your citizenship is really in heaven because you've been born from there. That is your origin. That is your true home. Instead of living like this world is our home, Authentic Christians, citizens of heaven, are to live in line with their true identity, which is heavenly citizenship. Far too often we are more enamored with earthly things than heavenly things. Do you find that true of yourself? I know that I struggle with that. But, the, but like the Streisand song says, 
This world always loses its luster, always loses its attraction, and ends up disappointing everyone who puts their hope there. Many times we stay way too long at the fair. Paul is using the citizens of heaven designation to make a clear point, a resounding point for the Christian living in this world. First of all, he, he had, he's already established what citizens of the world look like. If you have your Bible, I want you to look back just a couple of verses to verses 18 and 19 of Philippians 3. And you'll notice that Paul calls these people enemies of the cross. These, these citizens of the world, those non-Christians who were involved in the Philippian church, but who were motivated by the worldly passions, he calls them enemies of the cross. They are, he's describing those who are actually citizens of the world. This is what the phrase, their God is their belly, means. This doesn't mean that they eat too many french fries. It simply means that their sensual appetites are the focus of their lives. Whatever they want, they go after. This is a description, really, that Paul has established trying to identify what it looks like to be a citizen of this world, an enemy of the cross. Then Paul says that not only do they just pursue any appetite that they have, they defend those things and brag about them. Look at what he says back in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They glory in their shame. They're proud of their sin. The things that would normally shame people, they're proud of. And why do they act this way? Why do, they, why do they have this philosophy of life? It's because their minds are set on earthly things. They're citizens of the world. That's why. They've never been changed. They've never encountered the, the God of, of the scriptures. Their hope, their heart, their enjoyments are all in and from the worldly, from sinful things. Verses 18 and 19 really is a description of people who are spiritually dead. They have not experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They do not have a new heart. They have not been born from above. They are not citizens of heaven. They are citizens of this world. Worldly people have a very difficult time defining what a Christian is. Have you ever noticed that? They try to say that a Christian is someone who goes to church or someone who was born in America or who does good things or who was baptized or, or a long list of things that are not really true definitions of Christianity, but, but Paul has already identified what a true Christian is, what a citizen of heaven is. I want you to look with me just a little further back in chapter 3, and I want you to see how Paul contrasts citizens of this world with citizens of heaven. So thinking about defining a Christian, what does a Christian look like? What is a Christian? Well, here in chapter 3, Paul gives us a clear picture of what a citizen of heaven actually is. Look at verse 12. Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained this, that is, that perfect intimacy with Christ we discussed a few weeks back, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make Christ my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ has made me his own. 
That's the first thing we see here in Paul's definition of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Christ has made you his own. In some translations it says Christ has taken hold of you. A citizen of heaven is one that Jesus has taken hold of, made his own. Jesus has come and rescued us, citizens of heaven. He has done so personally. He has reached into time, grabbed hold of you and said, you are mine. Jesus has taken hold of every citizen of heaven. And then in verse 9, look back there. Paul wrote that a citizen, a citizen of heaven is one that is found in Christ. He says being found in Christ. Not found in the world, but found in Christ. Not found in a club or even in the church, but found in Christ is Paul's second description. He also said in verse 9 of this same chapter that a citizen of heaven is one who isn't relying on their own good works, on their own righteousness but are by faith depending completely on the righteousness of Christ. Not in a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that is by faith in God, he says in verse 9. According to verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3, continuing to describe this citizen from heaven, uh, we see that this genuine faith, this one who is truly a citizen of heaven, uh, has a passion for Jesus and a commitment to pursue and make much of him every day. Now, think of your own life. Based on observation, what would your neighbor say a Christian is? What would your coworker say a Christian is just by observing you? Would they say that this person has been taken hold of by God? I can tell that they are different, that they are citizens of a different place because God has, in fact, taken hold of them. They don't trust in their own righteousness. They say that their righteousness is from someone else, from God, an alien righteousness. Paul said being a Christian means being taken hold of by Christ, being found in him, and being justified by faith, to be declared innocent, to be declared righteous, to be declared free, justif justified, justification, all by his grace. Paul discovered early on, in fact, soon after his experience on the road to Damascus, that when Jesus died on the cross, God placed all of his sin, all of Paul's sin, past, present, and future sin on Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of Paul's sins, past, present, and future. And he did the same for anyone who will come to him, come to Jesus, and put their trust in him and on his work by faith. Have you done that? Are you a citizen of heaven? You remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul was describing this concept of justification. He says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, or God made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus was sinless, but he laid our sin on Jesus. Why? So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, we are justified because of Jesus's righteousness, because of Jesus's work on Calvary. This is justification. In the death of Jesus, God has exercised his judgment against our sin. The righteousness in view is not something that we can perform, and it is not initiated by us. No, it is only from God through faith. It's not a matter of good conduct that gets you justified. Many falsely or wrongly think that. Good conduct is a result of justification, not a means to justification. Justification. 
This is why verses 10 through 13 in Philippians chapter 3 follow verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 describe our justification by faith, and verses 10 through 13 describes our passion for Christ, our, our desire to do good deeds. Good deeds always follow justification, and it's never reversed. So to summarize, citizens of heaven are those who know they've been taken hold of by Christ and are found in him and are justified by faith in the work of Jesus Christ and are being daily transformed and passionately living out their love for Jesus. That is a citizen of heaven. This designation of citizen of heaven in verse 20 is very clarifying this is how citizens of heaven think. This is how citizens of heaven live. If we are citizens there, then we are aliens here. Does that make sense to you? If we're citizens there, then we're aliens here. And our lives ought to reflect that. We cannot be in love with this world if we are citizens of heaven. We belong there, and we are only here temporarily. Is that how you view this world? Is that how you, you view your life in this world, Sun Valley Church? It is, a, it is a very clarifying distinction, citizen of heaven. Secondly, I want to show you a motivation of expectation or a motivating expectation. So a clarifying designation citizen of heaven, and now a motivating expectation. What is the expectation that we see in verse 20? Well, look at your, look at your copy of the Bible. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an expectation that is. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Do you still think about that? Do you ever think about that? Jesus has promised to return and take us to be with himself. If you are a citizen of heaven, he's coming back to take you there. This is a motivating expectation. The word there in verse 20 awaits actually has an eager anticipation element to it in the original language, and it's correctly been translated elsewhere, eagerly awaits a savior. And so we need to understand, first of all, that all genuine citizens of heaven are motivated by the promise of the return of our savior. If you are a citizen of heaven, you are motivated by the fact that one day you will soon see Jesus. The, the hope of Christ's return provides believers with motivation and accountability to live as we should. In his letter to the Corinthians, you remember Paul said that we are to be living lives that produce gold, silver, and precious stones instead of wood, hay, and stubble, which will be burned up. And we need to be doing this in expectation of seeing Jesus. Our, our works need to be counted. We need to, we need to be concerned with working for the kingdom of God. And it has always been this way for people who, who are citizens of heaven, the ancient ones all the way up to the current contemporary ones. The ancient heavenly citizens we see in scripture eagerly anticipated uh, the return or the, the arrival of, of the Savior. This is what the entire Old Testament was about. This eager anticipation is something that supplies much holy motivation to all true citizens of heaven. 
Even as far back as Abraham and Moses, we see that the focus of their life was not on what they could acquire from this world. No, their lives and their eyes were on heavenly things, on the heavenly king. You remember in Hebrews chapter 11 when that author listed the heroes of the faith. He went through a bunch of Old Testament saints. He listed Abraham and Moses. Listen to what he said in verse 10 and 16. Hebrews 11, verse 10 and 16. He says in verse 10, For Abraham was looking for, forward to the city that has foundations, who designer and builder is God. That's what Abraham was looking forward to. The reason that Abraham could leave a plush surroundings in Ur and travel 400 miles across the Sahara Desert into, or the, the, the uh, middle, where is that? Uh, can we stop that? We can stop that? Okay, you can find it and come back. Okay. Okay, I'll start again. The reason that Abraham could leave Ur of the Chaldees and cross 400 miles of the, the desert, the Arabian desert, was because he knew that this was not his home. He had a heavenly home to look forward to. And that's what we read here in Hebrews 10 or 11 verse 10. And then in verse 16, the author of Hebrews says, but as it is, they who, the citizens of heaven, desire a better country better than this country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Even in ancient times, those who were citizens of heaven looked forward to the Savior, looked forward to their heavenly dwelling. Citizens of heaven aren't supposed to make the most of this world. Even though this world offers some pretty exciting rides and great stuffed animals as prizes, we eagerly await a savior. We, we have a motivating expectation. So why eagerly? Why couldn't we just leave that word eagerly out? Let's just, okay, we're, we're waiting for Jesus. Why do you think the author included the, the idea of eager expectation? Well, because it's Jesus who is coming. It's because we're talking about Jesus, the king of the universe the savior of our souls, the one who came and died for our sin. That's who we're talking about returning. You know, when Jesus comes, it's going to be an end to sin, end to sadness, end to pain, end to sorrow, and the beginning of perfect and complete joy. That should cause some eager expectation, shouldn't it? Eagerly awaiting this savior from heaven. We all eagerly await things. I eagerly await Seeing my children after a time of separation, I eagerly await fishing. I eagerly await going on vacation. I'm eager to watch soccer. I'm eager to preach. I'm eager to read certain authors. I, I'm eager to do things. But am I eager to see Jesus? Are you eager to see Jesus? Are you eager to be free from sin and all that entices you and drags you away from that communion with your Savior? Are we eager to be forever with the Lord? The return of Jesus Christ is a common theme in the New Testament ever since Jesus said what he did in John 14. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. 
I'm going to return and come get you, Jesus said. Paul spoke about this important doctrine a lot in his letters to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul called it our blessed hope to Titus. Peter called it the return of Jesus, our living hope. The Apostle John wrote an entire book about it, the book of Revelation, and he ended that, that great book with these words, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so we have the ancient citizens of heaven eagerly awaiting a Savior from heaven. And we have contemporary ones also. It motivates us as well as them. The prospect of the return of Jesus Christ should have a profound impact on our lives and on our conduct. It should dramatically affect our priorities. Does it, is the question. A man named Lord Shaftesbury, who lived in the 1800s in England, was a great social reformer and a solid Christian man. He said the following, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Wow. He hasn't lived one conscious hour without thinking about the return of Christ. I would say he's eagerly awaiting. My mom used to say to me, John, are you sure you want to be doing that when the Lord returns? The point is, if we are truly citizens of heaven, if we truly believe that our Savior from heaven will return at any moment, it should have a dramatic effect on how we live our lives today. Let me say that again. If we truly believe the Lord will return at any moment, it should have a dramatic effect on how we live our, live our lives today. So let me ask you a few questions. What makes you tick? Is it your investment portfolio? Is it sports or shopping or f friends or fitness or your looks? What is it that makes you tick, Christian? If any of the things I just mentioned makes it for you, then you're probably not motivated by the imminent return of Christ. Paul is exhorting us to be motivated by the thought of Jesus' return. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth must make an impression on us. So are you stuck in a pattern of sin? Having a hard time getting rid of some sin in your life? Are you having a hard time forgiving someone? Do you struggle with consistency in your personal worship? Do you resist giving generously or serving sacrificially? Well, the proper focus on Christ's return will give victory over these things. If you will set your mind on the return of Christ and, and work towards an eager expectation of his return, these things will be addressed. Consider the return of Jesus that the Apostle John was talking about in his first epistle. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Friends, those of us who are citizens of heaven are looking forward to the day when we will see Jesus face to face. And this hopeful anticipation, this expectation of the return of Christ purifies us. It gets rid of sin. It gets rid of relational issues. 
It purifies us. I believe there's no greater test of whether people are truly Christians than their view of life in this world. What is your view of life in this world, Christian friend? Is this world everything to you? Is this world anything to you? It isn't whether we subscribe to certain doctrines or believe certain things. People who have been truly transformed by grace and have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will always have a different view of this life and this world. Heavenly citizenship always makes a difference. Always. We aren't awaiting the inheritance of our parents. We aren't awaiting our next vacation. We aren't awaiting the raise at work. We aren't awaiting our next sports season. We aren't even awaiting the end of this pandemic. We are awaiting a Savior from heaven. This Savior will make everything right. He will make us right. So we have a clarifying designation. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship isn't in this world, it's in heaven. And that should make a difference. It should motivate us. Secondly, the motivating expectation is that Jesus is coming. Our Savior who is in heaven is returning for us one day. And this focus will affect us. Third and finally, I want you to see something powerful in verse 21. An amazing transformation. Look again with me at verse 21. This Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Friends, listen. <laughs> what a promise this is. You know, I've never met anyone who is 100%, 100% content with everything about themselves. I've never met anybody like that. Everybody I've met always wishes something were different or something uh, was adjusted in their life. Here in verse 21, we read that we will experience complete and amazing transformation. We will be changed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, look at, closely at the verse, and from it we, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body the idea of lowly body is that this body of humiliation, this weak vessel that we possess, this tent that we live in until we are reunited with our Savior in heaven. This lowly body that possesses sin, disease, all sorts of physical maladies, mental and spiritual weakness, that body will one day be done away with. And Jesus, our Savior from heaven, will change everything in an instant. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. Are you looking forward to that day? Oh, friends, we need to be looking forward to that day. Our bodies will become like Jesus' glorious body, this verse says. Remember what, what the Apostle John said in, in 1 John 3, 2? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him, because we'll see him as he is. The moment we come face to face with Jesus, we will be transformed into his image. This is a motivating promise as well, isn't it? <laughs> this is why Paul said in Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
You see, the, the bodies of all believers will be refashioned into the likeness of Jesus' body, his current physical body, which he currently has in heaven. We will be able to talk, walk, eat, just like Jesus did after his resurrection. We'll recognize one another in our next state. This new heavenly body will allow us to enjoy all the glories of heaven, enjoy complete fellowship with God, and perfectly reflect the glory of Jesus. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Matthew 25, 11 says that we will experience perfect joy. Psalm 16, 11 says we will enjoy perfect pleasure. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that we will enjoy perfect knowledge. Luke 16, 25 says that we will enjoy perfect comfort. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says that we will experience perfect love the moment we see Jesus. This is one, this is one of the most glorious truths in the scriptures. Every citizen of heaven will be changed into the likeness of our Savior from heaven, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is way more than we bargained for. This is why Paul said in chapter 1, verse 21 of Philippians, that to die was gain. Because the moment of death, we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We not only avoid the punishment we deserve for being rebels against our Creator, against our Savior, but we are promised this kind of future. Can you believe it? We get to be like Jesus. Romans 8.29 tells us that this is what God is up to. Transforming each of us into the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. We are being transformed or conformed into his image daily. That's what sanctification is. But at the appearing of Jesus or at the, the death of the saint, this will be instantaneous and it will be complete. Whatever transformation is lacking when Jesus comes back or when you die is immediately resolved with that face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. What a glorious thought. What a glorious thought. Friends, think on these things. The Apostle Paul said that these things encourage us, so think on them. Now I want to close with just three questions of application from our text today. Are you looking forward to this glorious transformation promised in verse 21? Are you looking forward to that? Has the lure of this world's fair grown old to you? Or are you still enamored with the shiny trinkets that this world offers? You're still on the merry-go-round of the world. Are you looking forward to the glorious transformation promised in verse 21? Secondly, are you marked by eager expectation? Does this eager expectation help you prioritize your life? Does this expectation affect your time, your money, your energy? Are you trusting our sovereign Lord in all things? Are you rejoicing over your circumstances while eagerly expecting this Savior? Thirdly, and finally, are you identified as a citizen of heaven? Are you found in Christ? Has Jesus made you his own? Are you counting on your own righteousness or on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior from heaven? Friends, are you identified as a citizen of heaven? Is it evident? What a what a challenging and encouraging two verses here in this wonderful little epistle. 
I pray that the Lord Jesus, the one whom we eagerly await, will take the truths of this scripture and minister them to your soul. Let me pray that for you right now. Father in heaven, I pray that you would, by the work of your spirit and through the, the love of Christ, minister to your people at Sun Valley Church. That you will bless us with these things, that we will keep in mind our citizenship of heaven, that we'll be eagerly awaiting a Savior, and that we will look forward that one glorious day when we will see him face to face and be transformed into his image, leaving all our pain and sorrow and sickness and trials behind. Oh, Lord Jesus, we agree with the Apostle John, come quickly. And we pray this in your name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.